if you were paying attention to the continuity in these texts and the messages, I hope it somewhat would perhaps raise your eyebrows to see this text this morning and realize that there are within it ethical demands that are being made upon the church. And you might go directly to the message from last week, the text from last week, which was about not allowing people to put upon you ethical demands. So what is the difference? Just as a reminder, in Colossians chapter 2, Paul writes about these false teachers that have infiltrated the church. He doesn't call them by name, but he is obviously referring to their teaching. He says, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels and going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together. And then in verse 20, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch according to human precepts and teachings. So we have this place in the letter where Paul is saying, do not allow people to make ethical demands upon you and pass judgment on you when you don't follow them. And then he immediately goes to a place in the letter where he says, now, here are some ethical demands for you to follow. My submission to you is this. It is both simple and profound. What he is speaking against in Colossians 2 are ethical demands that are based on human reliance and human strength. They are human precepts. The ethical demands that He is holding up to us are made in reliance on God. And you can see that if you go back to what we just read, where He says these are human precepts and teachings, and in verse 19 He says here's the big issue, they don't hold fast to the head that is Christ. In other words, these are man-centered, man-driven ethical demands that are carried out in the strength that you have in your body. I'm not going to touch this. I'm not going to go there. I'm going to make sure I do this and that's going to be my religious life and God will be pleased with me because I do those things. And Paul is saying, no, that doesn't work. Hold fast to the head that is the head of the church that is Jesus. And if you hold fast to Christ, your life is going to be transformed. And part of that transformation will be your conduct. The picture is not human-centric now, but Christ-centric. That Jesus is in you and lives through you, and that will change you. And that's the point of the message today, entitled Transformation. We cannot shy away from the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ will change you and I will say demands for you to change. There is an idea in our culture that love means you don't require someone to be different. That love means you don't ask someone to change. You don't ask someone to go against their desires and what they feel called to. That if you do that, it's not love. That is a man-driven philosophy. It is not from God. The love of God is that He changes us to be like His Son because we desperately need to change. We desperately need to be different. Not better. Christ is not coming to your life to make you better. To transform your nature is the point of the Gospel. And we cannot shy away from that. There is not a different Gospel to preach. Does God want to transform you? Absolutely. 
Does God want to transform those that you would share the gospel with? Absolutely. And if they expect a gospel that doesn't ask that, it is not one you can give. Not if you are sincere and true to the gospel. But this transformation is not in your own power and it is not in their own power. It is in the power of Jesus and you can't get away from that either. You cannot present to them a gospel that is about what they need to change and do better. You must start with Christ. You must tell them that they are sustained by Christ and everything points to Christ. It's all about Him. So let's try to look at this this morning in our text. If you want to write at the top of your notes, you can. I put transformation, but as you can see, I've personalized this so that as you're reading through it, it is you thinking about you. So if you want to write at the top, my transformation, you can. Because all of these things that we're looking at this morning is about this transformation that happens in your life when you know Jesus. And we are beginning where we must begin, and that is your identity. My identity. I do not want you to write anything in the first blank in your notes yet. You see it says, I acknowledge that blank is my life, but I don't want you to write what you know goes there. Because you know what goes there. You're good Sunday morning Christians. We know the answer. I want you to pause for a moment though. We say things like, music is my life. My kids are my life. My spouse is my life. My family is my life. We probably wouldn't say my career is my life. But what we mean by that is, this is everything to me. This is what I live for. This is what gets me up in the morning. This is what keeps me going. This is what sustains me when things are hard. This is what gives me hope. This is my life. I have two questions for us today. One, not what do you know goes in the blank. But if you are honest about yourself, what would you write? What is your life? And I will ask it a second way. What would someone say about you who knows you? If someone who knows you was to fill in that blank for you. David McConnell, blank is his life. Personalize that to you. What would people say about you? People who know you. People who see you. What would they say is your life? And what Paul is going to show us this morning, what the Gospel teaches us, is that Christianity all begins with that question. And for the believer, it is, Jesus is my life. I acknowledge that Jesus is my life. That is, If you want to say it, that is a statement of salvation and statement of belief. What does it mean to be saved? Jesus is my life. What does it mean to be born again? What does it mean to be a Christian? Jesus is my life. I hope, I hope that I never go through a trial where these things that I love are taken from me. I hope I never lose my job. I hope I never lose my spouse. I hope I never lose my kids. But if everything was stripped from me, I would keep living because Jesus is my life. If everyone else left me, I would keep going because Jesus is my life. That's the picture. It goes back to Colossians 2.12 where Paul says about Christianity, if you are a believer, if you've been born again, it means that you have been buried with Christ in baptism. So remember that picture. You're dead. You've died. As you're baptized, as your picture being put in the water, you're buried, you're dying to your old life, your old self. You're being buried with Christ and then in 
which you were also raised with Him, raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God. So you are dead to your old life, you're raised to a new life, and all of it happens with Him. So there is a union that happens spiritually between you and Jesus in your salvation. You are dead to your old life, and now you are alive to Christ. And that is what Paul tells us now in this part of the letter. If then you have been raised with Christ, if that is true of you, if you have been raised with Him, and Christ is your life, and now He's going to give us instructions. But what I want you to see before we ever get to the instructions is it starts with identity. It starts with this question. Have you been raised with Christ? Do you identify that Christ is your life? If you don't, you can't do anything that He's about to write. If you try to do the things that He's about to write without being in Christ, it's mere religion and it will fail. If you try to put upon someone these ethical demands without them being in Christ, they'll never be able to carry that burden or that, that weight. It all stems from being in Christ. And let's look at some more identity here. Look at verse 3. For you have died. Again, we're not looking at instructions yet. But you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What does he mean by that? He means your real life, who you are now. You get glimpses of it on this earth. You get taste of it on this earth. But you can't fully see it yet. And other people can't fully see it either. And those who are not in Christ, none of it will make sense to them. Because Christ is hidden to them right now. And so your life, your true life is hidden from their view. But when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with Him in glory. There will be a day where the scales will be removed and you will see Christ. You will see your life. Who you truly are will be revealed in full glory and you will live in that new life completely. You won't feel or understand the sting of temptation and death, and pain, and sorrow, you will fully live in Christ. And everyone who ever ridiculed you or shamed you for your faith in Christ, on that day, they will see why you did what you did, why you lived the way you did, because they will see Him, and they will see what life really is. I acknowledge that Jesus is my life. You must start there. And if that is your identity, then here's what is true of you in this second sentence, the second blank. I am becoming who I already am. Look at verse 10. He says, having put on the new self, so we're still talking about identity, new self, new identity. If you have put on the new self, that new self is being renewed. You could put or think of it as renovated. It is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. I want to remind you at the first of Colossians how important knowledge is. We prayed, we saw the prayer that Paul prays for the church in, Coloss in Colossae. I ask that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So Paul, even back then, was talking about identity, you being filled in Christ so you know how to live. And here he comes back and says the same thing. But what I want to point you to is this designation about who you are as you put on this new self. This new self is being renewed. It's not complete. You are being renovated. But you're being renovated because you've put on the new self. The new self has been put on you by Christ. So it's that tension that we see in Scripture. It's called the already but not yet. If you are in Christ, you have already been declared not guilty of your sins. If you are in Christ, you have already been declared glorified in the presence of God. If you are in Christ, you have already been declared perfect in the presence of God. 
But if you look at your life and you say, but I'm not perfect and I'm not complete and I still struggle. Yes, because God has not yet removed you from this life and Christ has not yet returned to bring the new creation. So therefore, you still wrestle with Adam. You still wrestle with your flesh. But you're not wrestling with it in hopes of one day being perfect, of one day being glorified, of one day being called not guilty. You are wrestling with it because God has already said that's who you are. So since that's your identity, you now live into it. You are becoming what He has already said that you are. I hope we get that. I hope it's we see the mystery of it. I hope we think. We say, oh, wait, that's a tough concept. It is, but believe it in faith. Because if you don't believe that, then all of these ethical demands in your mind, you'll start thinking, I've got to do these things to please God. No, you don't. You don't do these things to earn God's favor. You do these things because you already have His favor. You do these things because you're already in Him. I don't mean that you can't grieve His Spirit. You can. I don't mean that He doesn't take sin seriously. He does. We're about to see that. But your mindset is not, God's going to hate me if I do these things. So I've got to do these things. Now your mindset must be, I'm already in Christ. I have been declared perfect by God. One day that perfection will be complete in me. So, because that's who I am, I'm going to work on becoming who I already am. Alright, we'll move on, but I do want to say this. We have to think of ourselves that way. We also need to think of each other that way. None of us in this room are perfected. None of us in this room are glorified. All of us are still being sanctified. Which means we are going to offend one another. We are going to hurt one another. We are going to make mistakes against one another. So we forgive. We work together. And we keep going. Because that's the Christian life until the day we see Jesus. So your identity is, you acknowledge that Jesus is your life. I lay that before you this morning. Please know that that is true about you. And if it is not true about you, Ask Christ to be your life. Ask Him to save you. And the Bible says if you will confess your sins and ask Him to save you, He will. But if indeed your identity is that you are in Christ and He is your life, then Paul moves to talking about now your mindset has to change. Okay, so if this is who you are, if you're a new person, now you've got to get your mind straight. We're not to behavior yet. Why? Because what you do comes from who you are and what you think about. If you think about something long enough, you will do it. If you meditate on something enough, you will become like the thing you're meditating on. Mindset is really important. So here's what Paul says. If then you have been raised with Christ, if that is true of you, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So now he moves directly from, if this is you, here's what you need to think about. Number one in your notes, based on verse one, that we are to seek the things that are above. I prioritize everything in light of eternity. If that is my identity, if I am in Christ, if Christ is my life, that means when I look at my life, I prioritize everything in light of eternity. Where Jesus is. One theologian put it this way. This is a little long, but I think it's worth it. I'll send it to you if you want it. Just let me know. We must note 
that Paul means, what Paul means by this. He is certainly not pleading for an otherworldliness in which the Christian withdraws himself from the work and activities of the world and does nothing but think about eternity. Because immediately after this, Paul's going to go on to lay down a series of ethical principles which make it quite clear that he expects the Christian to go on in the work of this world. But there will be this difference. From now on, the Christian will view everything against the background of eternity. The Christian will no longer live as if this world is all that matters. This will give the Christian a new set of values. Things which the world thought was important, he will no longer worry about. Ambitions which dominated the world will be powerless to touch him. He will go on using the things of the world, but he will use them in a new way. He will, for instance, set giving above getting. He will set serving above ruling. He will set forgiving above avenging. The Christian standard of values will now be God's, not men's. If Christ is our life, we must prioritize everything based on eternity. We must look at our schedule and we must prioritize our schedule based on the fact that this world is not all that matters. Christ and His kingdom is what matters. We must look at our budgets, however small or large they may be, and we must use our budgets in light that everything we have is one day going to burn except for what is eternal. We must look at our relationships and we must say, time is too short to be encompassed in bitterness and anger and vengefulness, especially against other Christians because eternity is coming. We must look at our relationships outside the church and we must say, I cannot be silent in shame of the gospel because eternity is coming. Everything must be viewed and prioritized in light of the fact that this life is not all there is. But not only do we prioritize everything in light of eternity, but now we judge everything in light of Scripture. We get our minds to think about our priorities, but we must also get our minds to think about Scripture in how we judge things. What kind of judgments do we make? Every day we judge, this is good, this is not. This is evil, this is not. This is worthy, this is not. We make those kinds of judgments, again, based on our time and our money. We also make our judgments based on what we see in the world. What the world is doing, what the world is not doing. Everybody makes judgments all the time about what is evil. And what is good? The world is making those judgments. The world is looking at certain things and saying, that's good. The Christian must say, what does God say about that? What does the Scripture say about that? Before I judge if that activity, that relationship, that thought process is good, I must go and see what God has said. Because it matters not what I think. And it doesn't matter what happens to me if I proclaim this. What matters is, what did He say? And that must be how I judge what is good or what is not in the world. Set your minds on things that are above. We should think scripturally. We should think about our lives. We should think about our up. One another, we should think about how we make decisions based on what the Bible says because it's God's Word to us. The only way we can do that is if this Word is in us. Because 99% of your life, 99% of the decisions you have to make come at you so fast, you don't have time to say, let me pause here. 
I know you just angrily cussed me out. Let me take a step back for a moment. Let me go search the Scriptures. Let me see what God says I should do here. Or I've got to make this decision right now. Is this a good path or a bad path? You're not going to have time to go and, and, and seek. The Word should be in you so that your heart and your mind is already set on the things of God. And therefore, when it's time to make the decision, when it's time to respond to the hateful person, you already know what to do because the Word of God is on your heart. So how do you set your mind on things that are above? This will be... We'll kind of go through these quickly, but I want to give you a few thoughts. This is not an all-encompassing list, but I want to give you a few thoughts about how we as believers, can set our minds on the things that are above and judge things based on the Bible. And number one, we have to learn. We have to learn what the Bible says. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All Scripture, and that word is used to apply to New Testament and Old Testament, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. You and I, to set our minds and think like Jesus and think heavenly thoughts, we must have the Word of God in us and we do that through learning. Read it. Listen to podcasts that teach it. Go to corporate gatherings and small groups where the Word is taught. Discuss it with one another. You learn as you chew over the Bible together. It's okay if you have different views on certain things. Because discussing the Bible with someone who may see it a little differently than you do is a way in which both of you can learn together. You learn through those things, and it does take time. Secondly, meditate on the Word. As you're learning it, meditate on it. Meditate literally means to mutter to yourself, biblically. Mutter the Word to yourself. I hope that brings to your mind prayer. Pray the Scriptures. Pray the Word. Psalm chapter 1, verse 2. And back in verse 1, he said, Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. And then in verse 2, he says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The one who is being counseled by God is muttering the word to himself all the time. I'm working, thinking about the word that I read earlier. I'm laying down to go to sleep, thinking about the word that I read before bed. I'm going through my day driving down the road. I'm thinking and praying the Word that was in my small group or in my devotional reading. The more that you learn the Word and take it in, the more you will do that. And that is how you set your mind on the things that are above. And then you obey the Word. You obey it. You follow what it says. Hebrews chapter 5. Verse 14, and actually if you look at verse 11 through 14, the writer of Hebrews is talking about the difference between immature Christians and mature Christians. Baby Christians who need milk. Mature Christians who need meat. In verse 14 he says, solid food is for the mature believer. And then he describes the mature believer. Those who have had their powers of discernment which is a word that can mean judgment, discerning between good and evil, powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. What does that mean? It means one of the ways that you set your mind on God's Word, one of the ways that you grow in maturity, is you have to practice discerning from God's Word what's right and what's wrong. The more you do that, the more you don't just live by what is what you think or your natural inclinations, the more the Word is in you and you're making decisions based on the Word, the more you're growing. It's actually doing something in you. 
Even if you make a mistake, even if you choose the wrong thing, you learn from that and mature in Christ. The more you practice judging, making judgments about your life and your decisions by the Word of God, the more you mature. So you learn, you meditate, you obey. Those are all ways you set your mind on the things that are above. And then finally, 1 John 1 is share. You share God's Word. 1 John and John, John writes in that letter, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And we are writing these things so that our joy is complete. When you share what you're learning, when you share the Word that you are studying and meditating on and praying, when you share it with someone, with one another, with unbelievers, when you share those things, that is a way of setting your mind on the Word. And it is a way that joy, the joy of the Lord, comes in your life. We should have conversations in this church that are about spiritual things. We should talk about the Word together. We should text one another and say, I have a study in the Scripture this morning. I was just curious what you think about it. And then text about it. Get together. Somebody was told just last week there were some people in the church that were that got together for a, a small time to fast and pray and they were meeting in the mornings to do so. And then when they got to the end of the time they were going to meet, they said, let's just keep doing this. And so now they routinely meet once a week to pray together and talk over the Word. I, I want us to get together and fellowship and have fun and get to know one another. But the most important thing we do is the community of the saints that we come together, we get together, we talk together about God's Word. We discuss spiritual things. And that's how we help set our mind on things that are above. So, my identity, Christ is my life. What does that mean? Now my mind must change. Because if Jesus is my life, the old life is gone. The old way of thinking is gone. So now I've got to think differently. And here's how I do that. I learn, I meditate, I obey, I share in God's Word. And now we get to my conduct. Now we get to the ethical demands. But I want you to see again, these ethical demands are coming from your identity in Christ and the fact that you think differently. And I want to start in Galatians chapter 2. And in your notes, my conduct can be summed up this way. I live by Christ and I live as Christ. I live by Christ and I live as Christ. So here's Galatians 2, verse 20 and 21. And you're going to see very similar language as Paul writes to the church in the churches in Galatia, as you will see in Colossians. I have been crucified with Christ. So there he's talking not about baptism, but he's picturing the cross. I, my old life, has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I, my old life, who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So there's Paul's picture of what it means to be a Christian. Here's how I think about my life. It's not, it's not about David anymore. An old way of thinking, living how the world wants to live, that's not for me. Here's how I live. I live by faith in Christ. I look to Him. I ask Him for help. I ask Him to guide me. I ask Him to teach me. I ask Him to be with me. And I also have this mindset. It's not, even, it's not even me who's living. It's Christ living in me and through me. I want to live by faith in Christ and I want to live as Christ lives. It's not cliche 
kind of became cliche to ask, what would Jesus do? But honestly, it's not truly cliche. It is how we are to live. But it's more than just saying, what would Christ do? And let me try to figure that out and do it. It's looking at my life and saying, I want to be so close to Jesus in abiding. I want to be so close to Him and I want to have so much faith in Him and I want to look to Him for help that what I know is happening in me is He is actually living through me. Guiding me. Leading me. So it, it's not just me going, okay, well, it, you know, what do I think Jesus would do here? No, it, it's, it's literally me saying, Jesus, I want You to take my life and I want You to give me Your thoughts and Your desires. And I want to do what You do. Not what You would have done, but what You do right now because You're still alive and You're living through Your people. You are the ambassadors of Christ. But it's not merely that You represent Him. It is that He is in You. So you're doing what Christ does. You are the temple. You are His hands and His feet. His mind is in you and working through you. So you see your life that way. I live by faith in Christ, I look to Him for everything. I live as Christ. I want more of Christ, less of me. I want to decrease. I want Him to increase. How does that happen? We grow in knowledge. We get our minds set by spending time with Him in abiding. Everything I just said, learn the Word, meditate on the Word, pray it, obey it. All of those things are ways in which we are abiding with Jesus, putting ourselves in His presence. These 21 days of prayer, there are seven left. Finish strong if you have been walking through these 21 days. If you haven't even started, start now. Because the whole goal is to develop habits of abiding that continue after next Sunday so that Christ lives in you and through you. I live by Christ and I live as Christ. And so now I take off, in your notes, I take off what no longer fits and I put on what does. Paul uses this language, so let's read it in, in Colossians. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be... Excuse me, I'm in Ephesians. But... As you can see, they're closely related. Let's go to Colossians 3. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. His language literally is taking off a garment and putting on a different one. And the language there, if we take it to the illustration, it is there are certain... There, there are certain lifestyles that no longer fit you because that's not who you are anymore. There are certain ways of living. There are certain acts of conduct and behaviors. They do not fit you. So don't try to wear them. Take them off and put on Christ. And this is not an all-encompassing list, but he gives us examples. Sexual immorality... The Greek, porneia, literally anything that is against God's sexual ethic, which is one man, one woman in the context of marriage. Anything outside of that, the Bible calls sexual immorality. Impurity and passion also related to sexual 
immorality, which probably says this was an issue, especially among the Greeks. Their whole mindset was, whatever seems right, do it. Sexual activity is something to do in order to enjoy life, so do that. So Paul is pressing into that, against that, and saying no. Evil desire can also be related to lust, so it can also be related to sexual immorality, but it also can just mean violent desires, wrong desires. And covetousness, which is desiring something too much or improper desires, also of greed, falls into covetousness. Literally means an inappropriate desire for more. Paul says, put those garments off. They don't fit you anymore. He gives a second list. Anger, wrath, malice. He's talking obviously about attitudes toward people. We know that it is God gets angry. There is a type of righteous anger against sin and evil that is not spoken of, uh, spoken against in the Bible. But this is a kind of earthly anger that is vengeful. It wants to get revenge against people who have hurt us. Wrath literally means a swelling of anger. Malice, it means a desire to do evil, especially to others. Slander, now he gets into what comes out of our mouth. It is to mock people, criticize them, and then obscene talk, which is foul language. Paul says, those things don't fit you. Take them off and put on Christ. Take off what no longer fits and put on what does. I don't want you to miss the beginning of the exhortation. Put to death. Therefore, what is earthly? He uses very, Harsh language here. In other words, he is saying, take severe steps to put off from your life that which opposes God and God opposes. Because that's not who you are. Put it to death. He doesn't just say, set it aside, don't touch it as much as you used to. Just kind of You know, every now and then, if you mess with it a little bit, play around with that sin, that's okay. He says, put it to death. Kill it. That's another whole sermon because we can really only do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. But we go back to what we just said. Don't, don't, don't not connect these sections. How do you take off what no longer fits and put on what does? How do you put to death what is earthly in you? Go back to the previous line. You live by Christ. You live as Christ. You ask Christ for help. He will give it. You abide with Him. How do you do that? You set your mind in abiding by learning and meditating and obeying and sharing the Word. You are in Christ. He would not give you an instruction that you cannot do in His power. You can only do it in Him, going back to identity. But if you are in Him, you are to do this. Put to death what is earthly in you. It doesn't fit you anymore. You look at, you look at your life and you say, that doesn't work. It doesn't work. I can't do that and I can't agree with people who do. I can love them. I can understand that they need Jesus. But I can't live that way and I can't look at them and say it's okay that they do. Because that doesn't fit. So transformation is about your identity, it's about your mindset, it's about your conduct, and then it's about your people. I don't know how you that phrase hits you. I don't actually like it. But I've had, I've had people... Over all the years I've been in this church, I've had people come here and say, I love this church. I found my people. And I've had people who have left this church saying, I just can't find my people here. 
And so there's part of me that I'm just always like, oh, I'm, I'm eye-rolling in the Spirit. But I understand what we mean, but here's what, I want you, here's what I want you to do, okay? Preacher trick. Look around. Seriously, look around. Make some eye contact. If you want to make it awkward, stare at them for a moment. Look all around. Not just the person sitting next to you. Okay, those are your people. Why? Because God put you in the same church with them. I don't I don't care about your race, your background, your social class, your likes, your dislikes, your personalities. Doesn't matter. These are your people. Now, church universal is your people as well. Every Christian. Every Christian is your people. But I want you to think about it in the context of the local church He's placed you in. Because we're so geared to talk about my people from a standpoint of the people I get along with. They like what I like. They think the way I think. They, they view the world the same as I do. We have the same hobbies. In the new creation, the new identity, your people are the believers. And specifically the ones God put you in to a church with. So, my people, I am united with Jesus and therefore united with the local church He has placed me in. Yes, you are also united to the church universal and you can write that there if you want to. But it's really easy to kind of say, oh, yeah, 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 I'm united to all Christians everywhere. But you don't have to live that out with all Christians everywhere because most of them you're never going to meet on this earth. God places you in a local body and He says, now be there and learn how to live with one another there. So look at this last verse. Verse 11. Here, there, here, there in the church, in this new identity, is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all, he is in all. So here's where we start. And we did this during the community series, but I, I, I'm, we got to come back to it and we got to keep coming back to it. Jesus, if you are in Christ, He is in you. Christ is in everyone here. That's what unites us. That's what makes this your people. Christ is in you. You are united to one another through Christ. Not through your hobbies, not through your personalities, not through your paychecks, not through you know, who's never offended you or not. You are united to one another through Christ. We're all branches in the vine. The vine is who unites us. Christ is all and Christ is in all. Because He is in all of us, we're connected. And if we say, well, I don't really get along with them, Paul's answer is, Christ is all. Not personalities. Christ is all. And then he, he labels some things here. Greek and Jew, that's essentially nationality. Circumcised and uncircumcised. It's ritual religion. Ceremonial beliefs. Barbarian, Scythian. Those actually aren't opposed to one another. Greeks referred to those who didn't know the Greek language as barbarians. Literally, they literally bar, bar, bar. Like, that's what they say. They can't speak Greek. Not Barbara. I saw Meredith looking, but anyway. And Scythians were like the lowest of the low barbarians, according to the Greeks. So, what he's talking about there is social standing. Whether people think you fit in or not, or whether you feel you fit in or not. And slave or free, which is class, society class. In other words, what Paul is saying is, here's all these things that divide people. Not in the church. Don't live that way. Why? Because that's not who you are anymore. Take it off. It doesn't fit. Prejudice doesn't fit. Only wanting to be with this, this kind of group of people that, that, that you 
understand and get along with really well and kind of separating from these people over here because if your personalities don't match or or I favor these people because you know economically we we're kind of in the same spot or that Paul says that none of that works doesn't fit anymore that doesn't work it doesn't mean that you're not going to be closer friends with certain people than others it's going to happen doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean you can't have really close friends. Doesn't mean you're gonna be able to have the same friendships among the church right, equally. But it does mean we should try. Does mean we should try. Does mean we should look to invite some people over that we don't really know very well. It does mean we should try to invite people into what we're doing that we would normally not think about to invite them in. Can't tell you how many times I've had conversations that break my heart with people that are like, I just, I don't know, I don't know that I agape works for me. Because I just, I don't feel like I have anybody. And you know what? It's a very real thing. And I get it. And believe it or not, I've actually been there before. You might think, well, you're the pastor, you're a leader, you're super connected. doesn't always work that way. So we should care about those things and we should try to bridge gaps with one another. And we're all the answer to it. We're all the answer to that problem. But I would also look at those who are in that spot and I would say, your being in this church is primarily not about you feeling like you fit in. It's primarily about Jesus. Cling to Him. Cling to Him. The church is about Christ. The church is not about the separations that we would normally put on ourselves. So look to Him and love each other. Love each other. Do the things that you do when you love people. Do the things for one another that you do when you love one another. Where do you start with that? I would start with the people that you feel you get along with the least. Although if you do it after this service, they may know that that's them. I would do it with the people that I don't know very well. Christ is all, and He is in all. That's our identity. That's our mindset. It changes our conduct, including how we live together.